So today on The Golf Bag, I'm very excited to have a musician, singer, songwriter, lover of Arizona, Mexico, a tequila baron. Baron, awesome. From Roger Klein and the Peacemakers, this is Roger Klein. Hola, thanks, thanks for having me. Thanks, man. This is a big thrill. So I'm, I'm excited that, that you. That was here. a pretty cool introduction. I gotta say, I feel like I have something to live up to now. <laughs> Let's start at kind of a little bit of the basics. Are you're an Arizona native? Arizona native. Yep, born in Tucson. Son, my mother and father um, married in Tucson, and I was born there. And then when they were, when I was about two or three, I'm not sure, they moved to Tempe. Okay. So, yeah, most of my life was, was Tempe, um, not a ton of Tucson. And then my, my parents got divorced when I was probably seven or eight. And my father went back to Tucson and the, and the nearby family ranch, the Klein Cattle Ranch, which is down in Sonoida. So I was back and forth between suburban Tempe and then essentially rural or wilderness um, Sonoida and Tucson. Well, we sit here today in Tempe, in your house, yeah. which is very cozy. Thank you. Surrounded by a lot of peacemakers and tequila. Yeah, there's a lot of cool accoutrement. Musically, when did you like get the bug? Man, the bug. My mother, who's a school teacher, wanted me to take piano lessons. And it wasn't really my bag. I didn't want to do it. And we lived in a place in Tempe called the Lakes. And there was a, a lake there, a lake that a kid could fish in. So I would fake as much of my piano lessons as I could, and it basically took a backseat to um, to fishing. And she probably got tired of paying the $40 a month or whatever it cost at that time, so I let piano lessons go, but not without a sort of some understanding of the instruction. It wasn't until high school, there were a couple of bands who wanted a, needed a singer, and I didn't play an instrument. Um, but I, I stepped up and started singing, and lo and behold, we have a band, but I felt pretty naked not having a guitar, so I went and bought a guitar at a pawn shop, guitar and a guitar strap, and I just put it on, but didn't really play, just kind of hid behind it, and then I tied tied off the, the cord, the input cord to a handle or something, <laughs> so that it would look like I was playing, but I never did. But then just having that proximity and having an instrument in my possession sort of begged that I learn it a little bit, and little by little. Self-taught um, guitar player? Yeah, pretty much. You know, I'd ask my guitarist friends, what's an E chord, what's an A chord? How do you do this? Show me the difference between major and minor. And then lo and behold, I started coming up with melodies and songs that I'm really glad weren't recorded. You know, like <laughs> if I were a songwriter today, starting out, I would be so scared because everything gets captured and shared for a lifetime. All this stuff disappeared on, on cassettes. And yeah, I'm, I'm pleased that it did. What happened to that band? Uh, did what high school bands do and just, you know, broke up several times, reformed several times. Then I got, uh, we, I graduated high school, went to Arizona State right here across the street and actually joined the School of Jazz. That was my first, my first attempt at an education and got to where I was having to demonstrate a certain proficiency on the guitar. That was my chosen instrument and I, I didn't make a cut. And so before, before, uh, before I could make a fool of myself, my instructor took me aside and he's like, you're going to need another year of practice before you can demonstrate proficiency on that thing. So. It's like, you should just drop this course. And it was really discouraging. Um, so I did, because I wasn't the player that those other guys were. Right. Not, I was not on the guitar. So I did, I dropped it, and I think I picked up philosophy, but just kept writing. And then one thing led to another. Uh, I got called to sing and, and play rhythm guitar and share any songs I'd written with a band called The Mortals. And that was a three-piece. We went, we did the thing around town, played to eight to 40 people, depending on right, who we could right. draw. And then we broke up, and then I got a, a call to do the same. 
uh, I just kept writing original music, and then I got called to do the same for a band that did, had yet to be named, and that became The Refreshments. You had a song called Banditos, yep. which kind of blew up on a national level. It did. It, it, we got really lucky. That thing got full support of a record company that we had full support of, and it got out there, and it had a, a timely, hooky little thing that caught people's ears. And Yeah, we went from being nobody to getting in a van and touring, and then opening up for some bigger acts at the time, like, uh, who were they? Everclear, um, The Wallflowers, toured with Dishwalla, um, played a lot of big festival stages, went from a van to a bus, started headlining shows, playing to, from instead of dozens to, to hundreds, and then sometimes multi-hundreds, and the refreshments were a thing for a short time. So what was it like in Tempe at that time? And everyone talks about with grunge music coming out of Seattle, and that hadn't happened yet. So no, at that time, right. there's... Well, the, maybe it did. Yeah, actually, it had happened because I think... Oh, yeah, maybe it had happened. It, it was happening, happening concomitantly, but it got a head start over the quote-unquote Southwest sound. So I remember Pearl Jam 10. I remember Smells Like Team Spirit. Mm -hmm. not, yeah, by Nirvana. I remember Soundgarden. I remember Temple of the Dog. All those things were coming out. Right. They were really interesting, just not the way I would write. But then here in Tempe, when things like with you guys and the and Gin Blossoms and Pistoleros, Dead Hot Workshop, Dead Hot Workshop, major, major label uh, record deal too. Yeah. What was it like in Tempe? Because it's not, you know, it's not Nashville, it's not LA, it's not New York to be part of that. It was really cool. It was. I've never had an experience like it since. Um, all the artists were cross-pollinating. Everybody was sleeping on each other's couches, stealing each other's songs. Right. You know? It was in a very friendly way. It was super cool. It was a really exciting, feckened time for art. And what, what also was a big part of that scene, that buzz, that growth, was that the audience, for some reason, was, was there and enjoying that. So we would play to these... We played to great audiences. And we had lots of cool live music stages. We had the infamous Long Wongs and the Sun Club and the Electric Ballroom and Edsel's Attic. And these places were just great. We were really lucky. We had, the, we had the time and the people and the places and the audience and it all came together to make essentially a scene, whatever that is. Yeah, I remember going to Long Wongs and I, I, I bumped into Robin from Gin Blossoms, Blossoms yeah. and I said, I, I've seen you guys at Long Wongs and he was like, man, that was a long time ago. Yeah, but that's where we all got our start. It was the greatest place to put down roots here on those those sticky, smoky stages. Yeah. You know, when you write a song one day or week and then share it with the audience the next. It was before recording was so easy and before social media media would allow you to you know, record a demo and hit the whole world with it in a right. day. So it was cool, you know, people would get used to these songs through their live performance and then watch them take life in recordings later and people would be really excited about getting those sound recordings. You know, so when you put out an EP or an album, people are like, mm -hmm. yeah, I've heard these songs before, they already knew them by heart. It's right. really cool, it doesn't go that way now. It's an, it's an interesting sort of, people get the recorded song and then, then learn them, you know? Yeah, it's more organic then. People were already singing the songs before they ever, before anybody ever recorded anything. It was really cool. What's the story of the refreshments? You did two records, right? Yep. And then, so what happened? We came together as a band, played a ton in Tempe, Arizona, and that spread out to Phoenix and then other places like Flagstaff and Tucson. Um, just became kind of an Arizona band. Went to LA, did some showcasing. Uh, won the Ticketmaster Music Showcase as we were sort of expanding. Did a demo that didn't amount to anything. Then got invited to, we started drawing a lot of people. We were fun and we were 
we were loud and it was all, all things that college students and young adults wanted to do is go let off steam and, and dance and, and sing songs together. Then we went uh, to South by Southwest at the invitation of both ASCAP, our performing rights, uh, whatever they are, body, society, <laughs> yeah, and, um, and also through the New Times in Phoenix. And there were, there were record execs there and a couple of them were courting us, but the one we liked the most was uh, a gentleman A&R there, Peter Lubin, who ended up being our A&R guy. We signed with Mercury Records. And reason why is he'd said, like, there's nothing I really want to change. I want you guys to pick your sound, your producer. This is, you're doing it right. I'm not, you're not a development project for us. So just make your music and we'll, we'll get behind and it. And that never happens. It did for us, which is really rare. Right. Yeah. And it was a dream come true. He actually flew us all out to the offices in New York and we met the staff and they all had a, a copy of our demo wheelie and they all knew the songs that were very excited and it was genuine. It wasn't BS. And so we signed with them and they walked their talk through the president, Ed Eckstein at the time, and Peter Lubin and all the people who were on the floor, that means in the, in the company at the time, really gave us a push and got us into record stores and got us on the radio and got us the interviews and all that stuff. And so it became, it became a real career. It became like, wow, this is a thing that's happening. Um, the brakes got thrown on that sometime, I think, in 96 when... Mercury Records sold to Seagram's, but they basically fired everybody on the floor and installed a new president. And that new, new president summoned us as a young band who we, we considered ourselves succeeding. And by all measures at the time, we were had about half a million records sold in, I can't remember what it was, six, seven months, which is really rare for a quote unquote baby band. Right. Anyway, he just said, hey, boys, I don't know what you're doing, but you're doing it right. So we're going to have you do it over again. And here's your new A&R person, and we want you to go into the studio, and I'm canceling plans for you to go to Japan, Australia, and the rest of your U.S. tour. Oh, no. It was a big blow, yeah. We essentially got derailed from, from what we were doing, and then we had, you know, we had our, our songs. We had most of the songs written for Bottle and the Fresh Horses, but we got, a, we got different guidance from a different A&R person who didn't seem to really understand the band and wanted to make changes that we weren't... We weren't very pleased with. We didn't think fit us. Um, then we went to Austin. We recorded Bottle of Fresh Horses with Paul Leary, who's a great dude, but I don't think we picked the right producer for that. He's the guitarist for Butthole Surfers. Mm -hmm. And he just has sort of a different, um, he had a different vision of sound and delivery and even performance. He, he didn't think we needed to be as tight as I thought we needed to be going into the record cycle or going into the recording studio. And, you know, little things like that, little slips in our step added up to the band sort of not being as cohesive. And there was the success that we had behind us that this is all in the documentary, Here's to Life, so I'm not revealing any, any secrets. Mm -hmm. But our guitarist, Brian Blush, had gotten hooked on some, some things that weren't, weren't conducive to long-term creativity or cooperation. And the band essentially just broke up over it. All those things added up. And um, PH and I decided there was actually a moment where the record company, we were out on tour, and Wanted was supposed to be our first single. The band was, was really feeling pretty crappy at that time. Like we weren't very cohesive and kind of spiteful, and consternation was sort of the atmosphere, right? Anyway, the record company called us up and said we would like, this is a technical thing, and I know I'm, I'm blabbering on, but they said we would like 90 days to determine whether or not we're going to re-sign you guys. And during that 90 days, we're going to run out a single to radio, and if it succeeds, we'll re-sign you. Well, the deal was already, you're supposed to resign us now, like the lease is up, and this is when you're, you're supposed to sign us. Your option period is, is now. Like, 
in the next 10 days. You, you make a decision on whether you keep this band or not. Not we're going to make a decision whether to keep this band or not, deciding on the sales of the new team and a new record and a new record cycle that we were faltering in. Um, and for all, you know, a lot of reasons. So I said, no, I said, we got signed on to Mercury Records with, with a really good deal and a really good staff. And we were supposed to be essentially autonomous with your help, not measured by how the sales were. Now I understand commerce has got to do that to keep the lights on. So I said, no, I'm not going to do it. You make up your mind to keep us now or drop us now. And they called back with a whole, a whole bunch of, please don't force our hand like this. You know, we want to keep you guys. And I said, well then keep us. And I was basically the spearhead of this conversation in the refreshments. And it wasn't unanimous, but I was the writer. So I said, look, this is what I'm going to do. You guys are going to pick up my band now or, or you're going to let us go. And they said, with regrets, we're going to let you go. So we were then mm. free. At that point, were you like, oh, no, what do we do now? Terrified. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. It, was a hor- it was a horrible feeling to, like, to be on a major label with all that, all that backing, to have that all sort of slack off. And then to be out of there and basically kick, you know, kick to the curb. You know, we were part of that decision. I forced it on them. But yeah, it was terrifying. So it was the what do we do now moment. Brian was a total mess. So we decided we would take 90 days. We would field. We, we did get other offers from other record companies. Oh, wow, you, you dropped from Mercury. Let's make you an offer. Um, we said we need 90 days. We're probably too honest with these record companies. We're going to take 90 days and retool. We're going to make sure they're all healthy, and we'll give you demos. Brian didn't make the cut on that. He got worse and worse. Mm. So Buddy didn't want to be in that band anymore, um, so he quit. And at that point, I didn't want to be in a band with Brian, so I said, I'm going to take this elsewhere and um, abandon what was the refreshments. I don't want to use that name anymore because it was synonymous with sure. those personalities. Sure. PH and I looked at each other, scratched our heads, and went, the fuck do we do now? <laughs> and uh, I, I did what, what I've done. I just I said let's let's go on a walkabout. Let's go find ourselves in the desert, where where that's where I where I do it. You know, and he said I'm in. So we grabbed backpacks and headed down to my dad's ranch and walked around a mountain range for two weeks and wow. suffered and strummed new songs and and so you come out of the desert, come out of the desert with some songs and an idea, yeah. and start making making new music and looking for a new band and it took probably two years for us to to come up with a solid lineup of our new band we had guys like jim swafford who was in a band called the brumbies and he was also in the feed bags which were local legends around tempe and we had daryl eichardt who was in major lingo who's our first bass player and then he went off to do his thing and then danny white came in and he became our our bass player, he wasn't even a bass player, he was actually a guitarist, but he was, he was a very competent bass player and had a real real grasp of melody. Um, who else came along? Scotty Johnson from the Gin Blossoms. Gin Blossoms. Was, they, were, they were at the time, I don't know if they were actually broken up or just on hiatus, but they're back together now. Anyway, he spent um, 1.25 record cycles with us on Honky Tonk Union and then also contributed some, some stuff to Sonoran Hope. So little by little, we had players come in and come out. And then we had uh, Steve Larson come in from Dead Out Workshop, and he was with us through about Turbo Ocho. But it took a little while for that lineup to gel, but it was always PH and me as the anchor. At this point, though, you guys are by yourself. You have no support, no record label. Yeah, nothing. We just we took our bank accounts and financed a record for ourselves and made it in PH's house. Self-recording, self-producing. Self-writing, all the above. And the first is Honky Tonk Union. Uh-huh. What do you do? How do you get it out there? Well, that was the big question. There's a thing called the internet. I've heard of this. Yeah, there was. I didn't have faith in it at the time. I'm sort of a Luddite, you know. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a technophile. 
but we had a manager at the time said, look, what we're going to do is we're going to use this instrument called the internet. We're going to get as many, any, as many interested audience members to, to follow this party as we can. We're, you guys just do what you're, you're doing. You write your songs, perform your hearts out, get in the van, and, and hit those stages that you did in the early days. And so that's what we did. And little by little, um, we gathered a following. And we issued Honky Tonk Union with Reel to Reel as a live companion online for the first time online sales and its sales took number one on on the newly emergent billboard internet album charts wow yeah it freaked out billboard freaked out the whole industry freaked us out too probably freaked out mercury too well i don't know if they were looking <laughs> i don't know if they were looking at all because it took them a while to catch up but yeah we got a number one record right out of the box and it wasn't because it was an avalanche of sales it was because we were creative and our manager was was bold and he said we're going to do this on internet we're not going to worry about the brick and mortar shelves because they're essentially becoming less and less meaningful to sales they're going to become more and more niche which they are you know, he's like, we're not yeah. worrying about target we're not worrying about walmart we're not worrying about best buy well you know tower we'll, records which doesn't tower exist records anymore. went out yeah i remember hollywood uh, the one in hollywood went out of business he said it, the new paradigm is going direct to your audience and that's what you guys have always been about so we're following that that art and commerce model together and that's where we started. So next record is? Next record was Sonoran Hope. And it took a while to make because we were on the road so much. I remember years of 200 to 230 dates um, out of the van all across the nation just just hitting the road. And it you know it was exhausting and I didn't find a whole lot of time to write. So right. there's a, about a two and a half or three year gap between Honky Tonk Union and Sonoran Hope. And Have you solidified the band at this point? Um, no. Still <laughs> yet. moving parts? Yeah, no, because Scotty, uh, the, the Gin Blossoms reformed during the recording and writing of Sonoran Hope and Madness. And I forced, you know, here I am again, I forced a decision. I was like, I don't want a pinch hitter. I need a guy who's going to step up and, and be there every, every performance. And so I need you to make a choice. I love you either way. I want you in my band. And he, he took a week and went, I think I'm going to go back with the gins that were my original engine. And, you know, we have traction. And I love the, I think he said, you know, I love the excitement and all this of it being new again. But, you know, he had, he had two kids and right. a mortgage to pay. And sure. So I was like, I totally understand. So this is when Steve Larson steps up as one of two guitarists and, and takes the lead guitar role from Sonoran Hope through Americano into... Uh, you know, he was there for four or five years, maybe more, but all the way up through Turbo Ocho. Okay. And uh, in Turbo Ocho, we had, you know, I hate to cite it, but we we're creative differences again. And we had, we had two guys button heads about the direction, and um, off he went. And so at that point is when I found Jim Dalton. Yeah. Is he an Arizona guy? Dalton? Yeah. No, Colorado. Okay. He was in a band called the Railbenders, still is in a band called the Railbenders in Colorado, who had come down to play our festival in Mexico. And I had met him also in, on his home, home turf. They had opened for us in, in Denver. And for when I would do solo stuff, he and Johnny Hickman of Cracker would come and do a Hickman-Dalton duo and be my opening act when I would play solo in Denver. And so I met those guys through that. And honestly, he wasn't my first choice. My first choice, I tried to poach Johnny Hickman from Cracker. <laughs> well, you know, you, he's my friend. And there's no band is ever really super happy with themselves. It's, you know, it's an artistic commercial dogpile and there are there's discontent always in the air of, of of any band but cracker was getting pretty sour and he was he was kind of whispering in my ear that 
he would love a change. And so I offered him a permanent change. I'm like, you can come and sit in my lineup. And he took, he took a little time, like a day, and went, oh, it's so tempting, but my brotherhood is here in Cracker. And I said, that's actually a good, a good answer because I would hate to be the home record that I yeah. It came in and stole, you know, that half of Cracker, that melodic. He's the second tongue in Cracker. And uh, he said, no, but I know a guy, and you should, you should talk to Jim Dalton. So I, t I called up Jim, listened to, his, listened to his music, and then called him up, and he's a, a great dude. He came in, and we were going to do a couple of days of rehearsal and audition at, uh, at a space down here. And he just flat nailed it, like we knew it in the first about five songs. We didn't oh, have wow. to go any further. So I offered him the job at the end of that rehearsal. So going backwards a little bit, when did you realize that you guys have something special, different, crowd involvement? You know, when did you realize this is, well, I think we're onto something here, this is working? Um, is there a know, moment? Yeah, well, was there goes, a song? It goes all the way back. Yeah, Green and Dumb, I think, was the catalyst when I understood that it was going to carry forth from the refreshments. But I got that realization, that feeling of magic, lightning in the bottle, you know, two plus two equals five kind of thing when the refreshments weren't working. I didn't know if the magic would carry over in the Peacemakers because we were, you know, we're recreating a lineup. Um, and we didn't have a, we had a fluid lineup. We had different bass players, different guitarists, different, all that stuff. It wasn't until I started writing these songs like that people started singing back as loudly as passionately when ph and i were playing the little stages with the inset with the inception the, the little lineup of the peacemakers that i was like wow it's it's going to carry it's going to carry over and like there's a connection with the audience that we have that is the most important thing so that spark was still there we just had to be really careful to make sure it didn't go out get the right kindling write the songs from the heart get in the bus get the right players leave it all on the stage and go. So yeah, that magic carried over from the refreshments, but there was a moment where I was like, I don't know if this is gonna, I don't know if it would, but it did. It did when we wrote songs like Tell Your Mama, and I remember Green and Dumb getting sung back to us. You know, by the third or fourth time we'd play it, which shouldn't really be possible, people shouldn't be memorizing a song that quickly, especially when it didn't exist in a recorded form yet. And I was like, this is, this is cool. I still have goosebumps, you know, when feeling that magic come back. Well, it's a fun song to, to sing back you know, as a fan, it's a fun song because just the, the kind of the, the rhythm of the song. And you have songs that are, this one's much more mellow. Yeah, it's much definitely a mellow kind slower. of. Slower. Yeah, and it's funny enough, it's, it's really kind of a dark song, but people <laughs> gravitate towards it. I was just talking to Johnny Hickman about that, and he's like, it's funny. When he goes out and plays solo, people just throw out, they just ask him for the dark songs. You know, I was like, I, that's an interesting phenomenon. You know, <laughs> instead of having the party songs getting yelled at. Now I had, I remember, of of course, the first refreshments record, and I was on a sabbatical with a bunch of guys down in Puerto Vallarta, and we're the we're playing the CD, aging myself here. No, that's okay. I'm actually, I think I've got <clears> you by a few years. So don't, we're playing don't the CD. Sweat. We're listening to Mexico in Mexico. That's perfect. And it became our trip theme song that like we started every day before we went out every night we we oh, had right. it on and then i went on to you know i love being from arizona with like carefree and nada and cool. my favorite song from the refreshments believe it or not was i don't want to know oh great and i went cool. and saw you guys here in tempe one time and you started with that that's a care oh wow that's that's actually not very common for me to start with a, a ballad or a lower mid tempo yeah, that was song. your first Right out of the gate, so I was having an artistic moment for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that song was a carryover from The Mortals. Actually, I wrote that too really? in The Mortals. So it was Blue Collar Suicides. So it was Girly. I carried those songs 
from the mortals to the refreshments and then later from the refreshments through to the peacemakers. At this point, and is it not at to, to this point right now, but at this point of where you guys are at, have you exceeded what you expectations of, the, of what the peacemakers could do? That's a good question. I, you know, I set myself way more artistic goals than I do sort of financial goals. You see, we're sitting in my house and I, I'm a, I'm a suburban dude, you know, this, mm-hmm. uh, this is not opulence, but it's certainly, it's comfort and success could be measured in different ways. Um, you know, my bank account's probably shockingly similar to, to most <laughs> regular middle-class folks, you know, but they don't, I don't look like that. You know, I, I, the band people, in rock and roll, everybody looks bigger than they actually are. And so regarding expectations, I, I wanted to have a life that was adventurous, that was artistic, that was also servant leadership for my, for my, my fellow artists, my bands, their fam, their, my, their band, my band, their families, etc. And in doing it, you know, sharing this common vehicle of music to, to enjoy our lives and not live under fluorescent lights or be essentially independent, self-employed. In that regard, yes, I'm, I'm very, very happy and mm-hmm. proud. Um, I, I wish that we could have, and it still remains, you know, that we could have made a dent or gotten on the radar as an independent a little bit more of a mark for the sake of independent artistry um, in the industry. I would love to have a song get in a movie soundtrack, be invited, you know, get a Grammy nominations. Not so much for the self-aggrandizing factor, but to prove that this vehicle is that valid, and that the other artists who follow or are on the present mm-hmm. path can right. go. There's no limit, you know. Right. There's essentially no limit. Well, this, I think this isn't a self-containing nor self-contained sphere. Mm-hmm. It intersects with the public and the industry in a certain way that I wish I could prove was more successful so that other people could view it and dream the same dream and go, wow, I could do that. But we're still pretty small, pretty cult. You know, we're known coast to coast and across many countries, but regarding our, the depth of our commercial footprint, I would love it to be a little bit more, not necessarily financially right. rewarding, but to just go, yep, there you go, Grammys. Now anybody can do it, you know what I mean? And, and now more than ever with sort of you know the record companies taking less more of a backseat you can I mean, not, you could record though. a song right now yeah yeah the record companies are not taking more of a backseat they're actually doing I, I think they're running more interference with the artists you know artists can prove themselves to an audience and it does happen um, and get a worldwide audience worldwide audience that the hard part is is keeping that momentum um, we could probably cite a number of singles well there's a lot of disposable music yeah there is you know but there is that, and then there's that by accident. You know, sometimes an artist gets lucky in a moment and will give you a great song, but can't follow it up for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. It could be personal, it could be artistic, it could be a combination of them both, not an interface with the industry or whatever. They're doing what's called 360 deals. So instead of just giving royalties or paying royalties for music that is sold in one way or another, whether it's streamed or, or purchased on, uh, as a download, they now get a piece of almost everything, a piece of the ticket and touring, a piece of the t-shirt, a piece of the publishing, all of the above, and in that way, it's still it's still pretty damn grabby. If you look at you mm-hmm. look at the way the deals are structured, structured, and I know our artists are are savvy, and I, but it, it's still the same as it ever was. You know, record companies back in the day were sort of exploitative and did this thing mm-hmm. to artists, made them commercial slaves or you know cogs, and I think it's still going on. And uh, I'd like to see the artists have a little bit more power. Well, what, I think what grabbed me with back to the refreshments and then into the peacemakers is I've been saying this for years, 
I see you as like the Bruce Springsteen of the Southwest. That's high praise. I appreciate that. I can see your songs and I can feel what you're talking about. And you know, I like I've said, I, I've been to that beach in Mexico. I've tipped that bottle of tequila and, and bit that lime. I've Perfect. met that girl. You know, I've yeah. been down that road and, and I was just saying a couple days ago, I've been Sunday driving on an Arizona night. Perfect. I, I see Love those it. I see those songs. When you go in to write a song, do you have a theme? Do you, you, your songs seem very tangible to me. I, I, you know, I like, I like, you'll see I write story songs and then there's sort of concept songs and then there's sort of things that are in between, right? Um, the songs I enjoy the most listening to are, are very visual. And I enjoy writing in, in concrete detail. You know, I see the thunder from the, or, or I see the lightning from the storm down in Mexico. As a line, for example, it right. puts you there and everybody in their imagination can see that, right? Now, right. what that means metaphorically is up to everybody else. I know what it means to me. But I like writing in visual, in visual things. I can't always do it, um, but. It's, it's really fun. And in this last batch of songs I've written, I think most, I think my five out of five are all very, very visual. I just enjoy it. I remember as a kid getting visions from listening to the Sons of the Pioneers, you know, with Cool Water or listening to, you know, Ghost Riders in the Sky. Like it has an indelible right. imprint on me. I was terrified as a kid and I love the power of the, of, of the, the visuals that the artists would bring our way. Um, was a big fan of, of Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson. Marty Robbins, also a super visual, you know, writer. Just took took a lot of cues from those those guys. Yeah, yeah. And and I see a lot of the theme is, is there's a lot. Bruce of, does the same too. Screen door slams. Mary's yeah. dress waves. Like I see that right now. You know, bam. Yeah. You see it. And you, you can it. see the things in his song. And I feel yeah. I feel. And, and I'm not from New Jersey, but I can feel those things he's singing about and the struggles of people. Yours, I think, is a little more uplifting, but still visual. <laughs> Maybe, you know, he's, I, don't know you know I see a lot of hope in your songs. I see a lot Hopefully. of fun in your songs. And you talk about, and you sing about things that, you know, are challenges in life, but it seems like you have a spin to make them a, a more hopeful outcome. I, yeah, I want to do that. I'm like, you'll find if, if you dig into most of my songs, they have another meaning. They have something more of metaphor than just something than being tangible, concrete things. I used, uh, I see the lightning from the storm down in Mexico as an earlier example. That song, Nala, is not just about looking at physically at a storm. It's about spiritually facing one, recognizing it. And if you'll follow that story through, that, that person walks towards it the whole time and encounters a deeper and deeper ferocity and sheds more and more of his material self mm -hmm. for a cleansing in the storm, mm -hmm. you know, to come alive. So I try to do both things. Out of gas. Songs. Yeah, truck will go no other, further out of gas, but that person keeps walking forward into the storm. Yep. Yeah. You know, uh, I leave my, I, I cross a river, leave my shoes up on the other side. Off they go and on I go. Well, it's working because, you know, I've been to your shows and I've said, and I mean this as the greatest compliment, you're the greatest band that no one knows. <laughs> Thank you. Because Thanks. I've been to your shows and every person there Alice knows every the word and I was so to pleased. every song. It's, it's a very humbling experience and I love it. I, I mean, if, if I've maybe ever seen that at anybody, it was Pearl Jam. Yeah. But and I, Bruce. You know, and Bruce I'm, gets everybody's like, 
I've, I've been to a couple of Bruce shows and the people singing is just amazing. Yeah, but you have to feel the same thing. I mean, a Peacemakers concert is, it's the like, weird it's thing a reunion. I've never been, I hope so. A weird thing, I've never never gotten to see my band play. And to this day, it's, it's a vanity question, but I'll ask, you know, if I can find somebody from the audience and my wife is sick of this, I'm like, how was that? How was that show? And she's like, you didn't hear that? I'm like, I can't hear that. I mean, I can, kind of, but probably not the way the audience feels. Right. Like. I'd love to be in the audience at one of our shows one time. Just do have you, an objective experience. Do you it. feel that power and that energy of thousands oh, yeah, of people? and crazy. Yeah, sometimes it gets louder than the band. And then other times the band is, you know, in a little, a very, very tiny space and we can't hear even ourselves. So right. So we don't know. Like, are we making a dent here? And sometimes the lights are so bright yeah. You can't really see past... Past a couple rows. Yeah, and it, yeah. it's really frustrating because everybody can see you. And I'll, But I'll look out and I like to make eye contact with the audience. But there are times where I don't know if I'm staring at a guy or a girl or if I'm staring you know, at the top of somebody's heads or their shoes. And right. I don't want to fake it, so sometimes I'll just concentrate on the front front rows. Yeah, well, and I love, too, on some of the songs, you, you sneak little things in. Like, I still miss David Bowie. yeah. Um, you have a little Beatles in the in in this latest record. You have a little Beatles in there. You For got a little certain. Paul McCartney yeah, singing do. silly love songs. Yeah, I stole from both of them. And uh, I, I I will say that when I I love Flower and and right after Tom Petty passed away, I re, when I sang it, I replaced David Bowie with Tom. With Tom Petty. Petty, cool. Yeah, that's very but cool. What is in your mind the perfect Peacemaker song? Oh my goodness, that is tough. The one that comes to mind is maybe we should fall in love, and I don't know why. It just just came to mind like that. Um, it's upbeat. It's it's speaking about you know our our own human dignity and divinity, and like it's best expressed, and it has the po most positive outward effect when it's expressed in love. So. I don't know. That's my pick now, or maybe the same same song as "Viva Love" from the new record. Right, yeah. right, yeah. "Viva Love" from the new record is that song over again, just in a sort of a in a different form. Now, how same did, message. How did "King song. of the Hill" happen? Oh man, that was totally. For those who don't know, Roger Klein is it is it the whole band? Or is it you? It was the refreshments. But I wrote the refreshments. That. Yeah. It's the theme song to the Fox animated show "King, King of, the of the Hill." Hill. Yeah, which ran for thirteen seasons. It's funny that that song is our most famous, my most famous composition, and nobody knows who wrote it. It's a really funny <laughs> thing, you know. Like everybody knows that song, and I'll I'll demonstrate with a story. We were recording in Austin, and that we had just finished. Doing, not just finished, say within six months, finished doing the, the King of the Hill theme in Los Angeles, and it was on television on Fox, you know, just on Sundays, whenever it was. And I went in, I believe it was Bottle and Fresh Horses, I was looking for, per Paul, Paul Leary's instruction, or producer's instruction, he wanted us to change our sound, so I went and was checking out different amplifiers and different guitars, and I was in a shop in Austin, and I sat down with this guitar and was playing the King of the Hill theme, and this kid, I say kid, you know, I was in my late 20s. He was probably in his early 20s. And he's like, dude, King of the Hill theme. Uh, he's like, I can't remember what the... He's like, that's, you know, that's about about Austin, right? And I was like, yeah, I actually do. I, I, I was like, <laughs> I go, I, I go, wrote, I go, I wrote it, actually. He got, and he just looked at me and went, he's a salesperson. He looked at me and just went, yeah, right. And turned his back and left. And walked off, yeah. I was like, oh, it, it, at the time, I didn't think it was funny, but now I think it's funny. <laughs> um, so anyway, the King of the Hill theme came because Mercury Records got solicited by Fox through Mike Judge, Greg Daniels, and Joe Boucher, who were the producers and writers of that. They sent out a blanket, essentially curtain call, to artists to submit a theme for 
a Texas family, middle class. I remember there was like a two sentence thing. And then they sent a video cassette, a VHS of a pencil, t a pencil test, which had no information on it. It was just a quick 30 second animated thing. I looked at that and I was like, I don't know anything about this family or the direction of this, this show. And so I basically shelved it. And my manager called me a week later and he's like, you pen anything for that, that opportunity? And I was like, nah, I don't get it. And he's like, well, frickin' get it. Submit something. <laughs> he goes like, Danny Elfman is going to submit and a bunch of these other big time writers, you know? And I was like, he was like, you know, Gary, Gary Newman. So I said, I don't have context here and I, it, it feels too mercenary. I don't know what to do. And he's like, okay, just come up with something. I was like, all right, fine. So I just thought about it and I looked at it and I'm like, well, you know what this needs? And they wanted, they wanted lyrics. And I'm like, I can't do lyrics, but I can find music that feels like it should belong in Texas. Right. That the pace of life is really frenetic uh, for a family because I knew that. Um, and have it sound sort of country western. So I was in Chicago. We were taking a break at PH's house. And I started banging around with that thing. And it's really, it's really just an A-B part. It's a... It's a start of the theme, and then there's a quick bridge, and it goes back to the end of the theme. So I put those things together. PH was listening. He came downstairs and knocked out the drum part, and boom, we had something. So I showed the riff to Brian, and factually he said, he's like, I hate it. He's, you know, a guitar, I'm a rhythm guitarist writing a lead guitar part for a lead guitarist, and he was like, I hate it. What we did is we went, uh, we went somewhere in Kansas, I believe it was in Kansas, and we recorded... For submission at the pressure of our manager, you need to get this in, needs to be in by tomorrow, etc. At the end of the show, I basically coached the audience and said, this has been a total blast. Now we're going to play this song, and we need you to continue this energy. At the end of this song, just cheer like it's the best thing you ever heard, because we're going to submit it to Fox, and it might end up on a TV show. We play the song. The audience freaks out. We take the cassette out of the player and send it to Hollywood. What I forgot is that I, we didn't clip the leader so that Joe Boucher, Greg Daniels heard you say that, heard me say that. So to make this long story longer about a 30 second song, I was in, I think it was in Philadelphia and I got a call from my manager and he said, I need you to get on a conference call right now. And I said, what's it about? And he goes, no time, just get on, pick up the phone and the next time it rings. So I pick it up and it's Joe Boucher and Greg, Greg Daniels and Mike Judge, and they're all on this call they're like, is this Roger Klein, the refreshments? And I said, yeah. <laughs> who is this? And they announced themselves. I don't know who they were. And they're like, I don't know who you think they are or who you think you are submitting that kind of a, you know, you, we don't accept submissions like that for a television show, a nationally produced, you know, distributed, aired television show. This, you just, we're calling you. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, they're like, you can't just coach a crowd and submit a live thing. We're just calling you to correct this error. And they were all over my case for really? about 15 seconds. I didn't know how to respond. And I, as I paused and didn't respond, they started laughing. They're like, actually, we're joking. It's totally the spirit we want in this show. We love the song. Can we fly you out to Hollywood? And we'd like to make that the theme of the King of the Hill. Oh, so man. That's what a how story. that happened. Yeah. That's how that happened. We went out and Pete Anderson from Dwight Yoakam's band was our, yeah. our producer. And yeah, he did a really cool job. He captured that that jaunty, bouncy, sort of off the off the tracks kind of feel. It and totally fits that show, too. It does fit that show. That show yeah. is so all over. And I was so pleased because uh, I didn't know anything about the family. Like, what have I done? I've, I've submitted this song and I don't know anything about the show or the family. And it turned out it just sort of fit their pace. Right. Know, and I, I like it a lot. That's, that's hysterical. That's how that happened. So you have a song called 
Mexican Moonshine. Yeah. Yeah. What did that song turn into? That song turned into that that lyric became the name of our our tequila. So you have a tequila company, we Roger do. Klein. It's a tiny a tiny tequila company and it's it's a super exhausting labor of love, but we have the best tequila out there. Well, as I'm sitting here at your dining room table looking outside, I see boxes <laughs> you do. of tequila. And yeah, anywhere in here you can look. Well, we recycle everything, so um, all those boxes out there will be filled with uh, lights and we'll, we'll give them away or we'll give them to, to bars and cantinas and restaurants or if we do a, a show, right. we give them away. So we just make sure that the, we don't, we just, I hate throwing stuff away, so we recycle them all. So tell me about Mexican Moonshine. Uh, the, the tequila itself? The tequila. Is named, it's, a lyric, it's a lyrical tequila. It's named after the song Mexican Moonshine. It's, the song itself is a double entendre about the moon in Mexico and the spell that it casts and also um, what, the, what the liquor, tequila, can, can, what it can do to enchant you and the two together. It's magical. Uh, it is a magic thing. And so we named our, bottle, or our, our tequila Mexican Moonshine. Um, that's a long story too. I know I'm full of those things. You seem like a guy who should own a tequila company. I'm, I'm glad because I, I feel like a guy who should own a tequila yeah. company. We, when we were playing, even as the refresh, refreshments, when we were playing around Tempe, you know, we sang about tequila, about Mexico, about Nava, tip the bottle, bite the lime. And that became, it was always my spirit of choice, um, just being an Arizonan. It became our audience's choice, too. So our, during our shows, people were drinking so much tequila. <laughs> and a long time ago, about 2002, I think it was during this, the record cycle of Sonoran Hope and Madness. So this would be 17 years ago as we speak. A guy, a representative from a company called Casa Noble, who make a really good tequila, and all tequilas made in Mexico, but they made a really good tequila, and he said, we've been doing our research, and your little band, this is the Peacemakers, sells more tequila per capita at concerts, concert venues in the U.S. than any other band. Ever. Said, yeah, any band. Any band. Um, I don't know how he was excluding Sammy Hagar, or if, I can't recall if Sammy Hagar had Cabo Wabo out yet. I, right. I don't know. But I was like, wow, that's fascinating. He said, we want you to be the figurehead for an expression that we'd like to import to the United States and go sort of directly to the rock and roll audience, your, your crowd, and by expansion, you know, the live music venues and all across. It was interesting. There was a barrier to entry, actually. Instead of being able to say, well, you know, we're going to front this for you, we, were, we had to buy in, and we were a little band in a van. And at the time, we were in L.A., and, and the van was broken down. <laughs> and there was just no chance that we could come up with the money to put the skin in the game to participate like that. So that deal fell apart, but it piqued my interest. Anyway, that was 2002. And then two years later in 2000, I believe, no, maybe even a year later, we were doing a, a festival, and we still are down in Mexico, called Circus Mexicus. And so this would have been only like the second or third festival, but I got summoned to by some of the big players down in town, a couple of cantina owners, and they said, we sell more tequila here in a weekend when you're here and playing than we do all year when you're not. We also happen to have a tequila that's basically made for our cantinas. Would you like to have some fun? Put a cool label on that expression, the one we already have. So now this is the second time somebody said the same thing to you. Exactly. This is a calling. And so what we did, yeah, I was like, that sounds fun. How do we do this? And they said, look, we'll front, we'll front the costs. And you, put, your, you put, your put a cool label on this. And it'll be pretty rustic because that's what it was. And that's how I wanted it anyway. So we got to come up with a cool tin label. I can show you the thing somewhere. I have one of the original bottles. We made a thousand bottles. They sold out in a weekend and people... Wow. Yeah, and then people were, I won't, I won't say clamoring, but really supportive of it. When are you gonna do it again? 
my interest being peaked, I said, this is, this is working. Also, at the same time, as, an, as a businessman, record sales were shrinking for every artist. Mm -hmm. Like, if you used to sell 10, you know, now you're selling 7. And so that ancillary, is, as an independent, is very dangerous. Like, if you're a, a piece of your business is shrinking by 30% a year, it's time to wake up and look for other opportunities, especially if your ticket prices aren't. We tried to level out ticket prices and not make them go crazy. Mm -hmm. We still are that way. You know, you can see a Peacemaker show and get a two and a half hour, you know, dose of great fun and community for the 20 bucks, you know, 20, 25 bucks. Unless the venue is really massive and it's a co-headlining bill and it goes up. But compare that with Billy Joe, Paul McCartney, and you can't even get in the door right. within, you know, within eyesight of those guys for less than 300 bucks. Anyways, I digress. I went back to those two cantina owners and said, I'm, I'm really interested in doing this again. And they said, glad you asked, but we actually got... Um, kind of slapped by the authorities because we weren't actually allowed to license and do that. That's outside of the law in Puerto Penasco. Okay. We were supposed to go through certain federal government regulations, taxes, um, branding permissions, et cetera, et cetera. Like we, we got basically busted, but we're allowed to keep our brands for ourselves. And then they said, let us, let us put you in touch with some good distilleries down, down south. And so they did. And there are there are lots of elegant distilleries down there. Like, but I wanted something artisanal that was Monpa owned, was small enough for me to communicate with them, and have input to the spirit the way I liked it. Reposados, añejo, silver, and now ultra añejo. And so, I got help from a consultant who was in the liquor business and found a distillery down there, and the marriage was on. They were super cool. I still work with the same guy who made our first bottle, huh. our first recipe, yeah, his name's Arturo Fuentes. He's a friend, and he's just a maestro. He is a, an artist, and he, he helped me make what is our Mexican moonshine reposado, silver, añejo, wow. and he still stands by him. It's still some of his favorite expressions, and as we speak, we have a pending invitation to bring him down to the next Circus Mexicus and have a meet the maestro session where he can give a talk on tequila and talk about what Mexican moonshine means to him. And I think the thing with, with, with you and with Mexican moonshine, I mean, Sammy Hagar is, is party, right? Oh yeah. And, and yours, I think maybe because it's named after one of your songs and, and it's the vision of you and the peacemakers. And it seems like it's just, like I said, a natural progression, a part of where it should be, as opposed to let's go drink a bunch of tequila and get hammered. Right. Let's, this is part of, you want to go to a Peacemaker show, you can listen to all this. There's four different brands or flavors of Mexican moonshine. Yeah, it's part of the environment. That's cool. And it's the one that we, we prefer. You know, we spent time finding the right people, making it, um, vetting the distillery in such a way that they do commerce with conscience. They, uh, just to, to toot their horn a little bit, at, last time I checked, they were fully 40% solar powered. They're trying to get off the grid and be a, the world's first completely solar powered distillery. They don't dump any of their venazas or pollutants in any in any irresponsible way. As a matter of fact, they have um, a method by which they remove the toxicity or the toxins that are naturally in distillation processes um, via a solar and mechanical process, and they return those uh, what were pollutants and, and dirty ground, dirty water to clean water and compost, and it goes back to the fields as of a, as a benefit instead of a liability to the land. Hmm. So they're really good and they're great with their employees and the tequilas are just plain top notch. You heard it right here. Go get some Mexican moonshine. If you can find it. Like I said, we're still, you know, the ferocity of our independence sometimes limits our reach. You know, and I was talking earlier about I'd love to, to make a dent and, 
and get a co-write with some some superstar or get on the Grammys, you know, and like get outside our little sphere. But I want to do so without compromising integrity. And so sure. sometimes we get a little myopic in our in our world, you know, in our music world and now in our tequila world, and we don't participate in some larger programs because we don't want to dilute the authenticity of the product. So right. we've had opportunities that we've said no to. So you'll find that when you find Mexican moonshine, you'll find the best tequila, but you don't always get it everywhere. It's sort of difficult, as you were talking about earlier, to to locate. But once you get it, right. it's, um, it's right. you'll get the best stuff. And I will I will go one one sort of um, self-aggrandizing moment. Another thing, we in our distillation process, we take out fusel oils, aldehydes, ketones, methanols, all those things that are naturally in distillation processes and make it a very, very clean spirit. So those are really hard on the human body, those things, right, like right. more so, well, I'm no scientist, but more so than just alcohol. Those things are removed in our, in our tequila. So it's a very, very clean spirit. And that helps even. It helps. That helps morning. tonight and tomorrow. It helps. It helps <laughs> in the morning for sure. Now I'm not saying you know that, that can allow you to to abuse the spirit. I don't advocate. Please that. drink responsibly. Yeah, please, please drink responsibly and, and keep your health in mind and the health of others. You front the band. You write the songs. You travel 200 days a year. You start a tequila brand, but no, that's not enough. You have to start your own festival. Oh yeah, Circus Mexicus. But it was is a natural a, offshoot, like it you said is, before. It, it just like the tequila. You seem like a guy who should have his own festival. And, and where? Mexico. It's funny, you know. We just did it because it seems like we should have done that at the time, and it didn't. We didn't have designs on making a festival. We just wanted to go down to Mexico and play. And by we, I actually just mean I. Like no, there was nobody <laughs> else. Everybody thought I was crazy. Um, once the band, the refreshments broke up, and the peacemakers were forming, and. I was like, you know, I always in, in the refreshments tried to get our record company, management, booking agency, publicist to understand that that's a really important part of the music, that our intersection with that culture is all over the music and it's, it's familial, you know, mm -hmm. and so I wanted to go down there and play and nobody can see the commercial wisdom in that. So I was like, I understand. We can't sell records. We can't get on press. There's no radio. Get it. I just basically said fuck it and got in the van, took the band van down there and drove around town asking people if they had a stage and if so, could this little band that they'd never heard of have a weekend there? And I found one place that would do it and it was the Sunset Cantina and he actually said, I don't have a stage, but I have a roof and on that roof I can put pallets and over those pallets I can put some plywood and we can run extension cords. How would this work? I went down, scouted it, went, that'll work. We brought the band down, threw our stuff in the in the bus, not the bus, we threw it in the van, we didn't even have a bus. Came down and we had so many issues. We actually, the, the internet was newly emergent. We just invited people, like, you know, come on down, 15 right. bucks, we'll be here. The show will start at six. Sound check turned from, you know, what was supposed to be two o'clock, ran into six or seven. There was no gap between sound check and the show because the power wasn't working, right. you know. And, I remember a very a moment, it's really vivid in my mind, we're playing and the people did show up, sound check turned into to the show, but people were holding their hands up to their ears like we can't, we can't hear your vocal or it's like it's going up and down and making this sort of a, you know, that motion with their hand, it's like up and down. PH was sitting there playing and there was a giant inflatable promotional latex beer bottle behind him, one of those plastic sort of inflatables that are 30 feet tall. Right. And he looked at the fan. The fan. And he just unplugged it. And as the as the monolithic beer bottle collapsed and folded, 
the audience was like, whoa, that's it, because the power came back on. That thing was no longer a drain. That's but funny. They're like, there it is. And you, a, a Not to mention the, the visual crowd. of what just yeah, happened. Was, you know, the, the, the sponsor, you know, the death of this sponsor happening. It wasn't even our sponsor. It was just a beer bottle. And it was, it was crumbling and becoming, you know, flaccid as the, <laughs> as the music was, was gaining volume and power. And it was a cool moment. That's funny. So how long is, how many years have you been... Doing. 20 this year. We founded Circus Mexicus in in the same year we we released Honky Tonk Union. 20 years. It's in, is it the first weekend in June? Second weekend in June. Second weekend in June every year in Rocky Point, a.k.a. Puerto Penasca, exactly. Mexico. Yeah. So that's about three and a half hours, maybe four hours south of Phoenix. And the same from Tucson. Yeah, and one hour into Mexico, right? Yeah, Pretty roughly much. an hour. Everybody yeah. says it's an hour. It's actually about an hour and 15 minutes. But it feels like an Easy hour. to get to. Yeah, super yeah. simple. Super fun. How many bands perform? This year? Oof. It went from just us to, you know, maybe two bands, and then two days, and four bands. I think we have, if I had to guess, there's probably 20, 20 artists performing That's all over fantastic. town. Fantastic. Yeah, we've got a main stage, which will be next to Banditos. That's our little cantina. And then we have stages all over the place, like at JJ's Cantina, at Wreck the right. Reef, um, down on the Malacan, at Tequila Bar, at Boo Bar, at I mean, all, all sorts of places participate now. And you know, give this give the artists a stage, and that's awesome. Yeah, and then we just have it's like a festival, like South by Southwest kind of used to be 25 years ago. Do you see this going on for years? And I hope years? so. You know, I really hope wheeling so. Wheeling you out there singing. And yeah, totally, man. I would love it. There's gonna be a point where in my life I'm, I just have to be a curator less than a performer, <laughs> you know. But I would love to pass the baton of Circus Mexicus on to the music community, the Puerto Penasco community, the, the, the tourist slash expat community and make it a right, thing right. that you know, becomes a festival that the, the people can have and enjoy as an economic driver and as an artistic moment and so everybody can keep it. You know, right. it that would be a great legacy to leave. One of the things I know that you do, and, the, and you know, this podcast is called The Golf Bag. We've talked, let's see, carry the one. No golf, but this is carry the one. super <laughs> fascinating. Um, you also, you're, you'll find that, that very few people are going to get this far, in, far into the conversation. I'll be, God, that guy can talk. You also have the January Jam, which I'm assuming happens in January. And you it does, a, yeah. That's, um, you have a golf tournament. And we have a, a charity golf tournament there. You're not a big golfer. You're a big soccer player. I'm a soccer nut, but I do enjoy golf. So tell me about your golf tournament and tell me about your persona <laughs> at this golf tournament. But Carl Spector? Um, <laughs> Oh, we get impersonations too. Uh, it's not a good enough one. If I if I get to the end of a day, I can do Carl's Packer pretty good. It was actually um, a, the brainchild of PH, co-founder of the Peacemakers, and our drummer. Um, he's quite a golfer, and we were becoming a multi-day event in January. Jam so its popularity was was ascending, and he said we need to do something, you know, for a charity. We always have a con commitment charity drive with our festivals down there, and he said, how about we do a golf thing. I was like, perfect. And so um, he opened it up, basically a half-day scramble. It's super fun. And the band, band shows up in terrible, you know, terrible duds. And uh, in the past, I show up as Carl Spackler from, uh, from Caddyshack. And I, it's funny, I don't get recognized. If I oh, tuck really? back my hair and put it up in that, that sort of that floppy army hat and walk around with a stained wife beater. And <laughs> you're, my, you're cut off have camos. Have you seen the pictures? Yeah, yeah, I have. And, you know, we just kind of do that. I'll talk directly to people and they don't recognize me. And they think, what's wrong with this guy? Yes. But he seems so familiar. Wow. It gets around. And then after, after a little while, people are like, that's Klein. What do you like about the game? What do you like about golf? About golf? 
Personally, I like that I can play it, and even though you could be competing with other people, it's just against myself. Because like, right. I'm not good enough to compete with other people. It's a freaking mess. And so I like to be able to, to play for a personal best, right? And not necessarily have to be in a field of competition with other people. I enjoy that. I enjoy it being outdoors. I enjoy it being um, conducive to beer drinking. <laughs> I enjoy, and there's something about it. There's something about, you. Can, I can blow the drive, you know, for for eight out of nine holes. And if you get one, you're hooked again. It's such a joy. And that is very similar to songwriting. Um, it's not public. I, and I, Well, I'm not competing against myself, but it's always for a personal best, right? How can I express this thought, feeling, story in a way? My song iterations are madness. I think I played you one when we were trying to have breakfast. Right, right. I'll have two or three hundred of those little snippets or to to connect the analogy, eight or nine swings that are drive that don't connect. And when I get the one, it's joy. It's euphoria. Hey, so I'll, I'll just try it. No, that's not working. Wrong cadence. Not quite the melody. That's not Those aren't the lyrics I want to say it in. So when I finally snapshot a line or a verse or a chorus or a bridge, right. it's like it's like a, for me, 200-yard drive, you know, or a 225-yard <laughs> drive. And it just bang, the noise of that a strike in the ball perfectly on the club it doesn't twist in your hands it's not a, it's not a shank right it, nobody has to be looking right you know it when you get it and that's right. that's the addictive feeling of golf and it's similar to songwriting do you ever get songwriting images or verses or lyrics or names while golfing no actually i don't i that's wish i could say yes but no <laughs> no i don't because typically i'm just concentrating on golf but i will say um I, it's I'm open to it. You know, the thing about songwriting for me is it's best when it's done in the, with the subconscious engine. If I start muscling a song, and getting like I gotta finish this song or I gotta I'm gonna get through this verse. If as soon as I apply that much will to the process, mm -hmm. and I tr and I overpower my subconscious mind with my conscious mind, it's over. The the muse turns her back, walks away until until it's time to go again. Mm -hmm. um, so I do find I get a lot of that inspiration or the, the inspiration will come through when I'm engaged in other things. Driving's great for me, walking's great for me. Like I, I get music will start playing in my head when I'm just unwinding that way. But if I'm sitting on the couch trying to bang it out, Typically, yeah. it's when I strike out. Yeah. Well, there's so many great golf courses in Arizona. So many beautiful golf courses, and it's so diverse. In Flagstaff, it's pines, and it's desert in Phoenix, and it's pine top is amazing. Saguaro cactus all over uh, Tucson. Yeah. In Mexico, uh, it's its own. That, that Sonoran scrub is a beautiful. Yeah. Scene. Fantastic yeah. golf courses in Mexico, the, and the craziest, biggest event on the PGA Tour is the Waste Management Phoenix Open. Here. Here. Yep where you live. Um, you, what you may or may not know about the Phoenix Open is they have, I'm talking to everybody here, not Roger, you of course know this, what they, what they have, when the golf tournament goes off the air, there's a whole other thing that happens after at a giant tent called the Bird's Nest. Yeah, it's a party. Which is big enough to house a band. Oh my gosh, there's probably 5,000 people under that canvas. Have you played the bird's nest? Yeah, three times, I believe. Three times. What's that like? It's a total rush. And oddly, the first time I got invited to do it, I was like playing for a bunch of golfers. Like, this is going to be <laughs> stiff. No, it was not. It was, it was sudsy. It was really fun. Yeah. yeah. So we played it once where we, I think we, 
I think we opened for Alice Cooper twice. At and the bird's nest. At the bird's nest. That and is, we, uh, then that is a on, Phoenix thing through and through. Oh, yeah. And then, we, and also uh, Dirk Bentley, who's also an Arizona guy. He's got okay. Arizona roots. We opened for him once. So I don't think we've headlined it yet. Yeah, the Phoenix Open, the 16th hole, the bird's Crazy nest. Crazy party. Crazy party. It seems like a great place for a few cases of Mexican moonshine. Yeah, you know, could you drop that in their ear? Let's, let's get that down. Yeah, that seems like a perfect make fit, a phone call. doesn't yeah. it? Hmm. All right, let's ask a few golf-specific things. Have you ever had a hole-in-one? No. Yeah. Wait. Yes. You have. I have Papago. I did once. At a, at like a par three. A par three. Hey, if it goes but in the hole, it doesn't matter how far it is. Ph, uh, our drummer, and Todd Allard, who was uh, the refreshment stage manager, as my witness. And this was like twenty. When did the refreshments break? I was in the refreshments when I did it, so like twenty something years ago. But yes, once. One hole. One I've never had a, hole a little one. uphill thing at Papago on a par three. And I was like, it was just pure luck. You know? <laughs> I think most all the I ones are I think I teed off luck. with a six, and somehow it got in there. Do you remember your, what's your favorite course? Wow, my favorite course? Living in Arizona and Mexico, and there's, there's so, so many. many to choose from. I, I enjoy the summer play in Pine Top at the Country Club. Um, when you're, you're going to get chased around by the lightning, it's just part of the deal. So you got to take shelter and sit for... When you're carrying a bag of metal clubs. Yeah, exactly. But you're, you're there and they have places to take shelter and they do a siren. They have a discipline. But you get to park and drink beer. You know? So I, I really enjoy yeah. the, the summer play up at the Country Club in Pine Top. What is something that we would not expect to find in your golf bag? Oh my goodness. I don't know. You, you actually, there's probably it's funnier or more entertaining to to not find stuff that should be there, like you know, <laughs> balls like, and tees like certain and... clubs, you know, <laughs> that I've thrown over the years and I just never replaced because I kind of I'm such a insouciant golfer, you know. Um, but more like, hey, can I borrow a ball or a tee or a club? Is probably more uh, Rogers the third. What's hole. not there <laughs> is probably funnier than what's actually. In is there. there anything that you think you have to have? What do you have to have in, when you play golf? Oh man, what do I have to have? I have to have a lot of patience with myself because I'm going to lose, you know, I'm going to lose a lot of balls and I'm going to shank a lot of stuff. I wish I wish I had more mulligans for for certain. <laughs> yeah. You know, I like that I definitely like the, helps. I love the mulligan concept. I just wish it was a little less limited. <laughs> Can I have a mulligan a hole, please? You know, that's a good song title, The Mulligan Concept. Right? Okay. I can I'll write on anything. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. What's the best advice, golf or otherwise, that anyone's ever given you? Oh, that's impossible. The best advice, golf or otherwise, that anyone has ever given me? I don't know. I think slow down is a good, good one. Yeah. It's like in our modern, our modern life, you know, it applies everywhere. In golf, you get in a hurry, you're going to make a mistake. Songwriting, get in a hurry, you're going to make something that's indelible that didn't get to where it was supposed to be. In parenting, take a breath. Don't say what you feel immediately if it's going to be consternation or const if it's going to be consternation. You know, slow down. Don't be embarrassed about saying I love you. Just slow down. I think are That's a couple good. Of good words. Okay, last question. What is the perfect peacemaker song to play golf to? And for me, it's going to have to be something that gets me in the zen zone. Something long and droning like. I'm not a psych up guy with golf. I try to, like I say, slow down. It'd be like Leaky Little Boat. It'd be something. Kind of a reggae chill feel. That would work for me. All right. That's a great song. Thanks. Been a pleasure. This was great. Um, your music touches a lot of people. Don't stop. 
Uh, Your thanks. tequila touches a lot of people. Don't stop. Thank you. Uh, but thanks for everything. Thanks for uh, having me over to your house. It's a and, pleasure. It's um, better than a, than a loud restaurant or a cold patio. Yeah, it's been great. I really appreciate it. And we're going to go out of this, as I thank Roger Klein, to a little leaky little boat. Dig it. All right. Thanks, thank Roger. So much. I appreciate it. A placer es mío. Just a leaky little boat And as I wake, I look around I have no notion where I'm bound So many different colored boats I see All leaky, lonely and drifting Just like me My little boat around the sky turned black, sky turned blue. I got no bell, no sail, no anchor to Just a leaky little boat. Just a leaky little boat. I spy no island, rock or shore. I spy no island, rock or shore. I spy no island, shore. And the sea, she's a coming to me through a hole in the floor In my leaky little boat In my leaky little boat In my leaky little boat In my leaky little boat
if you're still here, I have a little bonus for you. I asked Roger what he thought was the perfect Peacemakers song. Here it is from No More Beautiful World from Roger Klein and the Peacemakers. This is Maybe We Should Fall in Love. All our might can't change it at all. Speed of light is slowing down to a crawl. And now we find that we'll take flight only when we fall. Maybe we should fall in love. The verse and the chorus The birds and the bees may smile or ignore us Despite our pleas What is this terrible thing Brings us towering to our knees Maybe we should fall in love 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 